Okay, confession time. How many of you during the course of that video, and, and not that Joshua did a bad job reading it, he did a fantastic job reading it, but how many of you while he was reading those verses found your mind drifting just a little bit? Anyone? Let's confess. Okay, see, here's the thing. You are not alone. That is what happened to me when I was studying this passage uh, to preach it. In fact, I, I, one of the things I do is, one of the first things I do is I read the passage over and over and over. And what I found is that the more times I read it, the more my mind drifted. And I almost couldn't get all the way through it because it seems like Paul is going all over the place. You know, he, he, he has all these different ideas that don't seem to be cohesive. So this is the null version of what he just said in this passage. Paul basically says, he says, as God is my witness, I didn't come to see you guys uh, because I thought I would I'd spare you. I, I mean, I'm not lording it over you guys or anything like that. Um, instead, I want you to have joy, but if I I visited you, it was going to be painful. Like if I came to visit you, it was going to cause you pain and you wouldn't be able to cheer me up. And so I didn't want, I wanted to be cheered up and I didn't want to have pain, but because if I came, I'd have pain and then you'd have pain and I wanted to give you joy, but I was in anguish because I really didn't want to cause you pain because I really, really love you guys. But really, if someone did cause me pain, um, it really was you that they caused pain to. You know, I'm not exaggerating about that, but the person has been punished. So forgive the person person, comfort them, love them, so they don't have grief. That's why I wrote, I was just checking to see if you guys were obedient. So if you forgive them, I forgive them. And what I've forgiven, if I've really, if I've forgiven anything, it was for your benefit. And I say this so that we won't have, fall into the Satan's schemes because we all know how he is. Like, that was no better, was it? Like, I tried to do my best to come up with this. But it seems like Paul is just kind of all over the place in this passage. And so I think we can be forgiven if we get a little bit lost in there. And so what happened is, as I was pre prepping this message, my mind kept coming back to that last verse, that last little bit. And I really think that this is the part that becomes sort of like the scaffolding for this whole message, if you get it. So here's what he says right at the end in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. He says, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, the reason I think that's the scaffolding is he starts it with the, the so that, right? And so what he's saying is all the stuff that he had just said in almost this stream of consciousness way as he's writing this letter, they all build to the point that he can say so that uh, we, I don't want you guys to be taken advantage of by Satan. I don't want to be taken advantage of. He's a we, it's me, and it's you, it's everybody. And, and Satan has his schemes, in the 1990s, there was a movie called Devil's Advocate, uh, starred Keanu Reeves, Charlize Theron, and Al Pacino. I cannot recommend that movie because of some very, very adult themes. Let me just say that. Can't carte blanche recommend it. But what I can say is I think it was one of Al Pacino's best films. And if it wasn't one of his best films, it was at least the best depiction of Satan that I've ever seen was by Al Pacino in that movie. <laughs> Because Al Pacino in that movie, he wasn't cartoony with Satan like Bugs Bunny having one cartoon on one of his shoulders of the devil and an angel on the other. He wasn't over the top like Lil Nas X. Al Pacino's Satan was cold and calculated 
and calm, at least until the end when his true colors came out. And I just kept thinking of Al Pacino's version of Satan when I read this verse. That we may not be taken advantage of, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now remember, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this, he, he wasn't just writing his own thoughts. See, just like the rest of the Bible, the authors in the Bible, it was inspired by God, which means the Holy Spirit himself was, was leading them as they were writing. And so this is not just the words of the Apostle Paul. This is the words of God himself to us for our benefit right here today in 2024 Lansing, Michigan. So what does this verse teach us? Well, first... It's a reminder that Satan, or the devil, is real. And, and, and tragically, it's almost become a contested viewpoint in the church. If, if you look at any studies of the belief of, beliefs of Christians, and I'm not talking about the beliefs uh, of just everybody in the world, but you look at the studies of beliefs of Christians, not every Christian or someone who purports to be a Christian believes that there's a God, that which is a troubling point in and of itself. But in every single study of the beliefs of Christians, less people believe in the devil than believe in God. And again, that's not just general people out in the population. And I cannot help but think that that must delight the devil. Because Satan, according to this verse, wants to take advantage of us. Satan has schemes by which he does that. I think it's interesting that Paul writes, we are not ignorant of his schemes because I think we are. Right? Because we don't even think about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a long detour out of 2 Corinthians before we get back to 2 Corinthians because I want to talk about the devil's schemes, Satan's schemes, starting in the very first book uh, of the Bible. So if you're one of those people who's flipping with us, we're going to go all the way to the first pages in Genesis. And in the beginning of the Bible, we have the creation uh, account. We have, we have God creating an absolutely perfect world and he populates it with animals animals and birds and, and trees and, and snowflakes. And, and then he creates humankind. He creates Adam. And from Adam's rib, he creates Eve. And he gives this first couple a task. And, and the task is to have full reign over creation. He calls on Adam to subdue the earth and for Eve to help him the task of subduing and exercising dominion over everything on the planet. And he gives them only one dis restriction, just one restriction. Restriction. Think about that. If you had one restriction in your life, could you do that one thing? One, there was a tree in the middle of the garden, and they were not to eat of the fruit from that tree. That was it. That was the only restriction. Let me read the account. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. 
No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so what you'll find is that some people will say, well, how do we know that this serpent uh, that God had made that was in the garden, how do we know that the serpent in this story is the devil? And that's a good question. So keep your finger here in the first book of the Bible and go to the last book of the Bible. Go all the way over here to Revelation. At the end, in Revelation 12, verse 9, it says, So that great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Now that right there is a, a description that is pulled through all of the Bible, including a book right in the middle of the Bible, exactly in the middle in Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah 14, it says this, shining morning star, by the way, that's one of the names of the devil, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens, I will set up my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest part of the north, I will send to the most highest cloud, I will make myself like the most high. Okay, so who is this devil? This serpent that we have at the beginning, the middle, the end of the Bible. Well, Satan is a, a fallen angel. So often we, we overplay what, who Satan is. We think of him as the yin to God's yang. We think he's like the exact thing that God is, but the evil version of that. But he's not. He's much less. He's a created being. He's created an angel. He was an angel that was so beautiful. He's described as the morning star. And this angel strikes a rebellion against God, and he's thrown out of heaven with his angels. We call those fallen angels demons. And the schemes that he has are very clear. When you start to read through the devil's schemes in the Bible, it shows up almost every time he shows up. And we can see it right there in the Genesis account. Remember I told you to keep your finger there? I didn't. Um, but if you go to the Genesis account, the serpent, the devil, the shining morning star, Satan, said this to Eve. He said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say. This right here is Satan's calling card. He throws that phrase out there and then he twists what God says to make it less palatable to the human appetite. And here's an example that is very current to us in our culture today and is very current to the culture of Corinth to whom Paul is writing this letter. And it's this, here's an example, human sexuality. 
God created human sexuality as a beautiful, exhilarating gift, and then God did what he did with the rest of his creation. He created boundaries around it. That's what God does. Everything God creates, he creates boundaries around that thing in order for that thing to exist within his will and not to become the ultimate thing that is at the throne in our lives. And so human sexuality is one of those things. And all sexual expression, we believe from scripture, is to be enjoyed in the context of a lifelong marriage. And, and by the way, there's an entire book of the Bible that's like a sex manual. You're going to read your Bible now, aren't you? Um, and, and basically, what science has taught us is that sex releases chemicals like dopamine and endorphins and oxytocin that reduce stress. It regulates your mood, but it does more than that. It bonds you with the person that you are being intimate with. We know that. Science has proven that. And that is by God's design. He designed sex to bond two people together for a lifetime. So what Satan does is he uses his calling card. Did God really say? I mean, how much in our culture have you seen people portray God's view as anti-sex? Right? Because he says, did God really say? And there's this idea that God is somehow a prude, that God is holding out on us, that if we could just shake off this puritanical notion of sex belonging in marriage, then we would have a truly fulfilling life. Satan plays this card, and that was just one example, right? Hey, he plays this card all the time, just like he did with Adam and Eve. God never told Adam and Eve that they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. What does he do? He just, he twists that a little bit, right? And, and so he says, did, did God tell you you can't eat from any of the trees? It's like he's, he's testing Eve, and Eve's response is, oh, no, no, no. And that's the good part. And then she says, he just told us we can't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden or touch it. Which, by the way, God never said. <laughs> he never said, you can't touch it. You see, so what the devil did here is, is he starts to twist this thing. And once he sees that he has an opening with her, he says, oh, no, no. He says, I I God knows that if you, you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see what he's doing? He's basically saying to Eve, God is holding out on you. And that's how he deceives. He tells us that the boundaries that God creates around things are, are there to, to hold out on us. And so instead of give us life and fulfillment, so he says to Eve, you should be like God. You, should, you are the one who is in charge of your life. Does that sound familiar? Now watch this. Satan didn't only deceive, he divided Adam and Eve. Adam had a God-given responsibility to communicate what God had told him to Eve. He either miscommunicated that or Eve misunderstood what he communicated. One way or another, Adam dropped the ball in his relationship with her. And then when she was being tempted by the serpent, Adam is right there. He's just standing there. We just He says, because when she got done being tempted, he was right there. She handed him the, the fruit. It's fascinating that Adam does absolutely nothing Nothing, And when Eve hands him the fruit, he takes it. And then in that moment, all of humanity fell into sin, a sin that the Bible goes on to describe, not the sin of Eve, but the sin of Adam. It was Adam's fault. 
He was supposed to lead and protect in his little home, and he didn't. And, and so Satan does is he, he divides Adam and Eve from one another. And then what does he do? He divides Adam and Eve from God. And all of the rest of creation is cursed. Not just humanity, but all of creation. Our world, the, the physical world itself is cursed in that moment, and we are all divided from God. And so what is and continues to be Satan's scheme? Simply, in my words, it's to deceive and divide. That's what he does. Look at what Jesus said in, in John chapter 6, or John chapter 8, if I can find it. John chapter 8, uh, Jesus said this, starting verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil. That's an encouraging thing for Jesus to say to your face, isn't it? Um, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I know we haven't been in 2 Corinthians yet, but that's the framework. The scaffolding for this passage is Paul making this assertion that he doesn't want us or the Corinthians, he doesn't want us to be taken advantage of by Satan. And he's like, we're aware of his schemes. And so his schemes, Satan's schemes, remember, are to deceive and divide. And I want you to hold that in your head and let's go back through this passage. It seems like a stream of consciousness passage. Second Corinthians 1, starting in 23. He says this, he says, I call on God as a witness, on my life. He's like, I swear to God, I, on my own life. Listen to what he said, he's, that, he says, that, that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I do not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. Now, the tense here in the original language is a little tricky. He's not saying that he and Timothy, the guy who we wrote this letter with, are working for their joy because they are standing firm, but because they have faith. And what Paul is doing here is he's answering a charge that is one of the central themes in 2 Corinthians, and that is that the people in this city were mad at him because he didn't come visit. That's, like, that's a, this one of the big things. He had promised to visit them, and he didn't. And this is how he describes it in the next verse. In fact, I had made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. And, and the key word here is another. Now, you may remember last week, if you were here, that uh, I thought that I should have brought a map up and I didn't bring a map. Well, I am really going to give you a map today. You map people are going to nerd out. Everybody else is going to zone out for about three minutes here. But let me show you a big map. Ready? Okay, so here we go. This is Corinth. In between 50 and 52 AD, the guy who wrote this, Paul, he plants a church in Corinth. And by the way, I'm showing you this map because some of you have asked me why I'm a four-letter knoll. If you haven't been here, you don't know what that means. That's okay. Um, but we'll show you this. This is the story. So 50 to 52 AD, Paul plants a church in Corinth right here. This is northern Greece. This is southern Greece. And then he, oh, that, that's okay. And then he moves over here to Ephesus to start another church. While Paul is in Ephesus, he writes a, a letter that's missing that, from Ephesus to them that he refers to in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, I wrote you in another letter. That's a letter we don't have. And then somewhere between 50 
55 and 56 AD, Paul writes a second letter. You have this one in your Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians. He was still in Ephesus at the time, all the way on this side of the Aegean Sea. Someone told me this morning, I look like a weatherman because we were testing this. This is the storm clouds moving to Ephesus. Um, but um, so then what happens is that same time frame, 55, 56, Paul goes all the way back to Corinth and he makes what was considered a painful visit. Right, and it was, it was difficult. Something went on with him and the people. It didn't go well. It was really difficult. And so what Paul does is he heads back to Ephesus, and from Ephesus, he writes a letter between 55 and 56 AD, a third letter, which we also still don't have. So we don't have letter one. We don't have letter three. And this is called the severe letter. He, he said, this is my really hard letter. He wrote it. It was difficult. It came after the painful visit. And then around 57 AD, he goes, goes all the way up to plant another church. He's up in Philippi, up in this area. And from there, um, he writes 2 Corinthians, the book that we are studying today, from all the way up here in Philippi. And then sometime between 57 and 61 AD, he goes back to Corinth for the third time to pick up an offering that he takes to Jerusalem, where he gets arrested, thrown in jail, hauled off to Rome to be executed. There you go. So for those of you who really wanted a map last week, then I gave you a whole bunch of them. Now, why does any of that matter? Well, remember the scaffolding of this message? It was Satan's schemes. And you remember what the Satan's schemes are? What are they? Deceive and divide. So what is Paul doing? Well, he's out here all over the place. He's out here traveling around. He's out here uh, starting churches. He's writing letters. He's, he's making tents. He's doing all of this stuff. And, and inside this local church in Corinth, the devil is deceiving and the devil is dividing and he's trying to pit people away from Paul and accusations against Paul are flying and the situation is fluid. And so he just calculates in this whole fluid situation, it is going to be bad for you and bad for me if I come visit. Even though I told you I was going to do it. He, he's moving around. He's like, I just, I can't. It's, it's bad for all of us. Look at how he describes it. He says, for if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? But by the way, I was, the, when I first read this, I was really bothered by this. I'm like, is Paul just being self-protective? But what he's doing is he's doing a very human description. Watch this. He says, for if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy because I'm confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. So what is he getting at? He's being just honest. He's like the calculation, the calculus in my brain was this was going to be bad for you and bad for me. The visit was painful. The, the letter was severe. You're going to hate it. I'm going to hate it. I'm not going to have any joy. I really want to get joy from you. I want to give you joy and love. It, it just is not happening either way. So I calculate the best thing for me to do is not to come and visit. Paul is clearing the air here by just speaking what? The truth. Even if it feels a little bit weird, like is, is Paul being self-protective? Is it all about him? Like, no, he's just, he's being truthful. He knew it was gonna hurt them. He knew it was gonna hurt him and a letter would be better. Rightly or wrongly, that's what he decided. <laughs> now we don't have that letter and we can get a bit of what was in that letter though. Look at the next two verses. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, <laughs> To all of you, this punishment, he says, by the majority is sufficient for that 
person. Isn't that strange? Like all of a sudden in the middle of the letter, he's like that person. And, and the implication is they know exactly who he's talking about. But we don't know exactly who he's talking about because we don't have letter three, right? And so we look at this and we have to figure out what, what, what's going on here. Well, here's what we can know from this context. Well, first of all, we know that this person did something to Paul, right? Because they were, the Corinthians, worried about Paul's pain. They're like, what this guy did, he did to you. Paul was the victim in this situation. But then Paul's like, listen, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not the only one hurt here. I actually think he did more against you guys. That's interesting. How so? Well, there's a multitude of reasons. What is likely going on here is that there was one person who was kind of the tip of the spear who was attacking Paul and undermining his, his authority, undermining the gospel message. And that deception, that division was not just against Paul, but was fracturing and dividing the Corinthian church because and he saw Satan at work. He saw Satan's schemes to deceive and, and divide. And even if they, everybody thought it was just a Paul versus this guy thing, they were all in the crosshairs of the devil. And so what had happened is at some point they had talked to this guy, they had exercised church discipline in the situation, they sat him down, they rebuked him, and it would be, seems pretty clear that he actually repented. And so Paul basically said, okay, that's enough. The punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person, which means they'd seen their sin, they repented, and that was always the goal, is restoration and unity. So Paul goes on in verse 7 and 8, and he says, as a result... You should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, don't miss this. What is Satan's scheme? To deceive and divide. When someone repents of their sin, instead of getting all pissy and leaving the church or writing a blog post, right? Um, it actually brings the church together in unity. Centered on what? The truth. So if I've lost you with all of this and all of the maps, let me summarize. The antidote to Satan's scheme to deceive and divide is to be united in truth. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you're obedient in everything. What Paul is referring to is this third letter we don't have. Um, and he was basically in that letter telling them how to handle this situation with the dude. And apparently they did it. And the next verse to me is mind-blowing. He says, anyone you forgive, I do too, for what I have forgiven. If I've forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ. And I don't know if you are catching this, but this is amazing. Paul was the offended party. Paul was the victim. That's why they were so concerned about Paul. He was the victim in this situation. And what he said is, I hear that this guy has repented. I hear that this guy has worked his way through the church discipline situation. And I'm good with him now. I don't need to fact check it. I don't need to re-adjudicate it. I don't need to rehash it. I don't need to go back through the whole situation. I trust you guys. You've forgiven him. If you forgive him, I forgive him. Can you imagine doing that in your heart? Earlier, I read about Satan from three different parts of the Bible. I actually stopped short in all three. I stopped just a little bit short in all three. Let's go look at all three again. In Genesis, 
right after Satan tempts Eve and, and leads humanity into sin, God makes Satan a promise. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is, uh, is considered by many the very first foreshadowing of Jesus in the entire Bible. That one day Eve's offspring would, would strike Satan. And who is that offspring? It's Jesus. Now, if you go to the middle of your Bible, to Isaiah, now the prophecy about Satan shifts from the past to the future, where it says in verse 15, but you will be brought down to Sheol to the deepest regions of the pit. That's Satan's ultimate destiny. And now look in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, and this is what it declares about the future. It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you and is in great fury, because he knows his time is short. Here's the truth. Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. And he will be thrown down. His ultimate destiny is already set in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, that's the blood of the lamb. Jesus lived a sinless life and then died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he conquered sin, Satan, and death. It just hasn't taken its full effect now. But one day it will take its full effect on Satan and he will be done. He has been conquered by the blood of the lamb and he knows his time is short. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he conquered sin, Satan, and death, he took all the broken pieces of this world and he began to put them back together. And we realize it in part now, but one day everything will be fully restored. Relationships that are broken will be mended. We will be with one another and with Jesus forever. Death will be defeated. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we do so with a confidence that the future is secure. That's the truth. The devil's schemes that he, he used with Adam and Eve, he used with the Corinthians and Paul. It's the same as it has always been. He wants to deceive and divide, deceive and divide. He wants to whisper to us, did God really say? And then he's going to accuse us, and then he's going to divide us. So we, as followers of Jesus, we stand for truth and unity. We resist the devil by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the only one who can save us, and he will one day set everything right. And so we keep our eyes on him, believe the truth in him, fight for unity within the church, and that is how we resist the devil's schemes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for Jesus who has conquered sin, Satan, and death. We, we thank you that the, the, that the devil's time is short and that he is well aware of that. And so we don't want to be ignorant of his schemes. And so we just pray that in those moments where he seeks to deceive 
and divide us, where he seeks to take the truth of God's word and twist it so it becomes unpalatable, where he takes the truth of God's word and has us look at it and think, God is holding out on us. That can't actually be true. And those times where he seeks to divide us from one another, that we would see his schemes for what they are, and we would lift our eyes from the situation we are in to Jesus in glory and remember what he has already done for us. That the blood of the lamb has already sealed the victory in the end. And we just pray that our eyes would not come off of Jesus. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.